So tonight is the closing of our series entitled Instrument. We've been going through the book of Esther, and we wrap up the last few chapters this evening. Last week, we saw that there was a great tempo change in the story. There was a great reversal that everything that even comedic. We saw that Mordecai, who was facing certain death as Haman wanted to hang him in the gallows, that instead Mordecai is paraded around the city with a royal crown and a royal robe on a royal horse by Haman. And that Haman is killed on the gallows that he had prepared to kill Mordecai upon, that Esther's plan is working that she has this whole strategy, she's brilliant the way she thinks about how she's gonna craft this conversation with the king, and she begins to enact the plan. She has two feasts, and it's all coming together. It's very dramatic, it's comedic, it's ironic. And what we said is that God's music is jazz. We, we may feel like God's music in our lives is like pop music or, or heavy metal, we're banging our head against the wall, pop music and basic, or singer-songwriter, we feel like our, our full potential is never reached, but God's music is truly jazz, which means it is unexpected, it is shocking, it can seem, when you're listening to it at the very beginning, like it's disjointed sounds and instruments coming together, but when you take a moment to rest and to listen and to reflect on what God is doing, you see that he's building a beautiful song and there's beautiful symmetry, even when it feels or when it seems disjointed and chaotic. God is in the business of shocking and reversing the things that we are experiencing in life. And so tonight, uh, we are picking up in chapter eight where the king, after he orders Haman to get killed, turns to Esther and to Mordecai, and he wants to honor them. He, he's feeling very generous, as we saw over the past couple weeks. He tells Esther that she can have anything. What is your request up to half of my kingdom? And now the king wants to honor them. So King Xerxes says to Esther, Queen Esther, listen, you can have all of the riches, all of the household of Haman. You get everything he's accumulated, all the money he's made, everything that he's been able to do in his life. It is now yours. And then he says to Mordecai, I'm going to elevate you to the position that you should have been elevated to five years ago when you showed your loyalty to me by letting me know about the plot that was against me. And so he elevates Mordecai to second in command. He gives him the signet ring, so now he has the power and the authority of the king. And ironically, he says, also Mordecai, you get to be in charge of Haman's estate. It's unbelievable. So you're sitting here and you're thinking about what's happening, but you have to imagine how Esther and Mordecai are feeling because the plan is not finalized yet. There's great reversal, Haman has been killed, and the king is on Esther's side, and everything seems like it's going well, but here's the problem. The decree of death that was instituted to, to wipe out and annihilate all the Jewish people is still in place. And so... Esther comes to the king and says, listen, king, you're being so generous. Thank you for all of this. But there's still one problem. And that is that the decree of death to wipe out my people and myself is still in effect. You haven't destroyed it yet. And the king says to her, well, here's the problem. When a king enacts a decree of death, it is irrevocable. 
Imagine how that felt like, all this for, for what? It's irrevocable. And so Mordecai and Esther get together and they begin to scheme and to plot and say, okay, what are we going to do? Like, we can't rip up the decree. The king cannot go back on his word. There's a decree out there that people have license to kill the Jewish people. And so they realize that because Mordecai has been elevated to second in command and he has a signet ring of the king, that they can create their own decree. And the king has given them blessing to do this. And so they create their own decree. They gather some wise people and some advisors and they have people that are writing it down, the scribes, and they create a decree that says this. The Jewish people are now elevated to a new position and status in society. They are elevated to the level of ruler. These people that were once overlooked, that were helpless, that nobody even thought a second about, are now elevated to one of the highest positions in the kingdom. The Jewish people are identified as rulers now. Their identity has been changed. And not only is their status elevated, but also they are given license to defend themselves or to use whatever force necessary as a precautionary measure against anybody that would want to harm them. You have to understand how shocking this is. The king has told Esther, what is your request up to half of my kingdom? He gives Mordecai the signet ring so that he can create and institute any kind of decree that he wants. Esther and Mordecai, who are both Jewish and have been overlooked and are treated as helpless. I mean, when, when Haman goes to the king in the very beginning of the story, he's like, these people are worthless. Nobody even cares about them. Is it okay if I create a decree to kill them? The king doesn't think twice about really understanding who the people are. He doesn't even know that his queen is a Jew. And now Mordecai and Esther are two of the most powerful positions in all of the kingdom outside of the king. And they're creating a decree that is essentially legalizing civil war inside of the kingdom. Because you cannot revoke a decree of death. So the people that want to kill the Jews still have license to. But now Jews are elevated to a position that is above many other people in society. They're treated as rulers. And they have the right and the freedom to not only defend themselves, but to take whatever means necessary to protect their life and their family from anybody that would want to follow Haman's decree. And you read this and you're like, this is unbelievable. You read this little side note too in the story that's shocking. It says a lot of people come to believe in the faith of the Jewish people. They identify as Jews. And, and a lot of people think, well, maybe that's just they were fearful because it says that out of fear they kind of convert to Judaism. They're like, listen, now the Jewish people are rulers and they have this freedom and this power and this authority to kind of defend themselves or to really do whatever they want. So I'm Jewish. Who's Jewish? I'm Jewish. And, you know, like they're Zoroastrian, so they're kind of dualistic. Their religion's confused and they, they don't, you know, they have multiple gods and, but it's kind of monotheistic and they believed in this one supreme God called Ahura Mazda. So if you drive a Mazda, you're kind of Zoroastrian. And then they're like, well, okay, we'll just, I guess we'll just be Jewish. But see, I think that's actually not what's happening. I think what's happening is that people are observing what God is doing in this story. They're sitting there and they're saying, wait, wait, wait a second. We know the Jewish people. We know what they believe. We know that they believe in this God, Yahweh. They say that he's the one true God. And these people, no one's even thought about for a second. I mean, they were exiled and they were enslaved. And now, I mean, they have a little bit of freedom, but there was this decree of death to wipe them out and to kill them. And 
And now the queen of the Persian Empire is Jewish, and the second in command, Mordecai, is Jewish, and the new decree elevates them to a status that nobody would have ever expected, a status of ruler, and they are given license to defend themselves and to protect themselves. I imagine that a lot of people are observing the events that we've been going through throughout this series, and they're saying, wait a second, maybe old Mazda is not the God. Maybe it's Yahweh. Maybe Yahweh is the one supreme God, and people are coming to faith because they're observing what God is doing. But see, a lot of people, even though they're observing this and they're seeing what is happening, a lot of people still hate the Jewish people and they want to kill them. They want to wipe them out. And so what happens is war breaks out. And we don't read about whether or not any Jewish people are killed, but we do read that uh, the Jewish people in Susa kill 300 men and then 500 men, and then they kill 75,000 people throughout the provinces in the empire. And when you read this, it's unsettling. Like as a modern thinker, you read these sections in the Old Testament and you're like, ow, why does it have to be there? You know, like, why does there have to be like the violence and the killing thing? It really messes with the way that I think and understand who God is and the way that he's unfolding his story. You know, we live in a culture where violence is, is evil. We, we don't want violence. We want peace, understandably, which is good. We elevate dignity and tolerance, even though sadly it feels a little bit like we're, we're kind of reverting. We're, we're kind of upholding violence if it will advance our agenda, and we're destroying people's dignity, and we're not as tolerant as we used to be. But as a culture, as a, as a modern Western culture, we herald these things, peace and dignity and respect and and yet we read stories like this and we're like, I don't really like that. You know, you, you look at this story and you're like, okay, maybe I'm okay with it here because the Jewish people had an irrevocable decree of death upon them. They were gonna get killed because there's a lot of people that hate them. And so they're now given license to defend themselves or to take whatever means necessary to to kind of precautionary defend themselves. And, and so they, they saw these people, 500, 375,000, and they, they killed them like as a defense mechanism. I'm gonna like kind of be okay with that. But when you read throughout the Old Testament and you read a lot of the stories and the accounts of violence, it's difficult. Raise your hand if that's difficult for you. And if it's not difficult for you, that, that's amazing. It, it's difficult for me. It's hard to understand and to believe in. It's hard to swallow because if you're like me, when you think in the Old Testament and you process this, you think to yourself, okay, if God is sovereign and he's powerful, why does he need to use violence? He doesn't have to. He could allow another means or his plan could unfold in a different way, but yet he allows violence in different moments and different times. And I think in order to, to kind of understand this on some level, you have to kind of pull back a little bit outside of the individual stories like the story of Esther or some of the other accounts that you may read in the Old Testament. You have to pull back and see what God is doing in his grand narrative. 
You see, the very beginning, the very first book of the Bible, in the very first few chapters, we read about the story where Adam and Eve are in the garden, they're in perfect relationship with God, and, and they're flourishing, and it's exciting, and everything's good. And then God says, listen, I have a life for you, a life of flourishing and goodness and relationship with me. I just don't want you to eat from this one tree. And they're like, okay. But then, because we're in their nature, we're like them, they're like, ah, I don't know. Like, I kind of think the tree is good. I know God said not to, but to me, it looks good. To me, it looks like it's gonna bring wisdom. To me, it looks like it's gonna make my life better. So they take up the tree and sin enters the world and, and so does violence and wrath and hate and hostility and all of the things that we despise. And what begins to unfold as we see, as we read God's story and as we experience God's story in our everyday lives, that there's a cosmic war happening, right? There's a war between good and evil between holiness and sin, between God and what he is seeking to accomplish and what Satan is seeking to undermine. There's this cosmic war taking place that we experience all the time. Good and evil, holiness and sin constantly unfolding. And the implication of this is that there's another tension and hostility that is going to unfold as well, which is there are people that are seeking to follow God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. They're seeking to follow what he says is good, what he says is holy, though imperfectly, but they're desiring that. And then there are people that eat from the tree and they're like, I'm gonna find some more trees. You know, like I, I'm, not, I'm not returning back to God. I don't want anything to do with God. I'm gonna run my own way. I'm gonna follow my own path. And so what happens is there's tension now, not only as we experience a tension between good and evil and the tension between holiness and sin, but there's a tension between people, between people who follow after God and people who don't. And there's a conflict here. Now, of course, what is true of the people of God is that the people of God themselves are sinful. The people of God themselves are broken and they are not holy. We are not holy. If you were to define us, going all the way back throughout all the stories of the Old Testament to today, we would be defined as sinful and evil because we choose the tree. We run away from God constantly. But yet, when you look at God's story, you look and see what he's doing time and time and time again. He's constantly coming to his people, the people that are, that are following after him, that are seeking him, that believe in him. He's constantly coming to them, even though they keep running astray, they keep making bad decisions, they keep chasing after something else, they keep worshiping other gods. He keeps coming to them and saying, let me help you see who you really are and who I really am. I want to show you deliverance. I want you to see what is actually good. I want to reveal to you what the path of flourishing really looks like. And see, what happens is the people of God begin to understand this. They understand that the grand narrative that God is unfolding is a narrative between good and evil, and God is promising to conquer it. He's promising that holiness will conquer sin, that goodness will triumph over evil. And so though the people of God are experiencing that, that cosmic war, their faith is rooted in a God that has promised to triumph over evil and sin. 
And so what happens is we read in the Old Testament all of these different accounts of how God's story is unfolding as we read here in Esther. And we read accounts of violence where God allows violence or violence takes place. And it's hard for us to stomach it. But we forget the cosmic war that is unfolding between human beings because when we look and see what God is doing, maybe as you heard the plan of God's grand narrative that holiness is going to triumph over sin, that goodness is gonna triumph over evil, you're like, yes, I like that, but leave people alone. And see, that's where the tension is for us. We are excited about God triumphing over evil. We want to see holiness conquer sin but we want God to leave people alone. The problem is, we're sinful. We're the ones that have brought it, we're the ones that create it, we're the ones that enact it, we are the problem. I mean, violence and hostility and anger and wrath and all the things that we despise is because of us. It's because of human beings. Sin and evil does not exist apart from human beings. And so we look at God's love, and we understand that God is promising good to triumph over evil and holiness to triumph over sin, and we see that, and we understand that God's love is so deep we can never understand it, but we have to remember that so is God's sense of justice. You see, on a small level, maybe in a glimpse, we understand this. When something horrible happens to you or to a loved one, when, when a deliberate sin or evil is committed towards you or a loved one, what wells up in your soul? A desire for justice. You want justice. You want the appropriate consequences to be brought. We crave it. We demand justice. That is unfolding in our culture right now. All of these horrible things that are happening, and then we are saying, listen, it's not okay to overlook that. It's not okay for those things to happen. We want to see justice. We want to see appropriate punishment for the crimes that have been committed. And the problem is the crimes are always committed by people. And oftentimes as we read, though it's not comfortable, God allows violence in different occasions in the Old Testament because there's a hostility and a cosmic war between good and evil. And there are crimes being committed and God is seeking to protect and to care for his people. And because people bring sin and violence into the world, that is oftentimes a measure of protection. It's a measure of restoration at times. And see, what's interesting about the people of God is they understand two things. One, they understand that they are perpetrators of evil against God. They understand that they are perpetrators of evil against God because they're sinful and they're broken. And this is why, as you see all throughout the Old Testament, what do the people of God do? They offer sacrifices to God as an atonement, as a payment for their sin so that God's justice will be satisfied, that he won't have to pour out his wrath and his judgment upon them because their sin has been paid for through the sacrifice. They're perpetrators of evil against God. And yet, they're also victims of evil perpetrated upon them. Time and time and time again, all throughout the Old Testament, we read about armies surrounding the people of God looking to kill them. 
We read about people in their cities refusing to leave and drawing up arms against them. We read about stories like this, where there's a decree of death that's been enacted, it seems like, by some one guy, Haman, who doesn't like Mordecai and doesn't like the Jews, and so he enacts this decree to kill them. But then we read that there's actually a lot of people that hate the Jews and want to kill them. They're also constantly victims of enslavement and of exile and of hostility and of war and of tension. They're victims of this decree of death and they literally feel it. And so we read stories like this where God brings deliverance and oftentimes it involves violence and sometimes it's really difficult for us to swallow and I get it, it's hard for me to swallow at times too. But it's important to take a step back and understand what God is doing. He's triumphing over sin and evil through holiness and goodness. He's seeking to protect his people. And as evil people, we bring these things into the world. And oftentimes God is using and working in and through those things to bring about the deliverance that he has promised. And so what happens here is that as they remember and as they recount what God has done, they rejoice. They institute a festival to praise God for what he's done. Because what they have seen is that God is for them. He's with them. They thought they were going to be killed, and yet now there's an opportunity for them to defend themselves and to protect themselves, and God has, has saved them. He has delivered them. And this is what we read in a section from our passage tonight. It says, Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter, this whole story, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. So as all these things unfold, as the Jewish people are saved and delivered, they're elevated to the status of ruler, they're given license to protect themselves, and they have to actually then go forward and do that. And 75 plus thousand people are killed. They gather together, and Mordecai and Esther institute a festival, a celebration called Purim, that is to be followed and uh, celebrated every single year for two years, and it's still celebrated today. And what's so interesting about this is that this is included alongside the five festivals that are given in the Torah, but this is a unique festival in that it was not given from God, and it also was not given through a prophet. Mordecai and Esther are not prophets. It is a response of spontaneous worship that wells up from within Esther and Mordecai as they look and they see what God has done in their lives. That the cosmic war of good triumphing over evil, of holiness over sin, that God is for his people, he's protecting his people, he's working good in their lives, and that because of their faith in him, he is treating them with love and grace and mercy and justice instead of how they should be treated. And they institute this festival and they worship God each and every year. And the reason it says that they institute it 
is because they think about all that has happened to them and what has been done, and they think about where they're at now. You see, they had a literal decree of death hanging over their heads, but now they've been given a decree of life. And that's why they worship. And that is why we worship. Why are you here tonight? You see, we're to gather here as the church to worship because we're saying something. If you're a person of faith, here's what you're saying. I, have a, I had a literal decree of death hanging over me because I'm sinful, because I'm honestly, I'm, I'm evil, I'm broken. And I knew that because God has a deep sense of justice that he cannot overlook my crimes. He can't overlook my sin. He can't just be like, no big deal because God's perfect and holy. That's not part of his story. And yet I'm here because though that was my identity and that was a decree hanging over me, it's no longer my decree. My decree is a decree of life because Jesus took upon his shoulder a decree of death. You see, Jesus came and he didn't say, if I perish, I perish. He said, I'm going to perish. I'm going to take a decree of death upon my shoulders willingly so that through the offering of my life, the very last sacrifice, the final sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, because I lay down my life and I shed my blood and I break my body for my people, when they come to believe in me, they're not going to receive a decree of death. They're going to receive a decree of life. And he proved that on the third day when he came forth victorious, alive. Because Christ lives, we live. You see, we're here and we're gathered as his people because we recognize that. Because we believe that. Because we're saying, we now have a decree of life. And we are to celebrate and to praise God for who he is. You see, you have to meditate upon this. You have to think upon this. And here's what's, here's what's really important to recognize. In this story, it says that once a year, the Jewish people are commanded, they're obligated to worship God in this festival, Purim. To recount what God has done in this story and where they, what they were facing and yet what he's done and who they are now. But your charge is not once a year. It's every day. This is why it's so important to come to God in prayer, in reading of his word, in meditating upon who he is every single day. It's not only important to do it in personal worship, but also in corporate worship. You see, this isn't optional for us. This is important and it's necessary. You ever wonder why we worship on Sundays? Because this is the day that we celebrate and we remember and we recount that we have a decree of life. Because on Sunday is when Christ came back from the grave, where we realize that his sacrifice was once and for all, that we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore to God because Jesus was the sacrifice, that he took the decree of death, that we might have a decree of life. And we have to take a moment to sit on this and to think about this because if you don't understand your need for a savior, you're never gonna come to really trust and faith in your savior. If you don't come to believe and to know and to meditate on who you are and yet what God has done for you, then you're never gonna respond in spontaneous worship. 
There's a quote from N.T. Wright that I love. He says that, put it this way, if your idea of God, if your idea of salvation offered in Christ is vague and remote, your idea of worship will be fuzzy and ill-formed. The closer you get to the truth, the clearer becomes the beauty. The more you will find worship welling up within you. That's why theology and worship belong together. The one isn't just a head trip. The other isn't just emotion. You see, we are made to worship. That's our design. That's in our DNA. We are people of worship, and we always worship what has impacted us. We worship what we know because what we know affects how we feel. We worship what we know and then it affects how we feel. And we are people that at the deepest level of our heart, we crave to worship and to know the God who made us. When we hear that God's grand story is triumphing over evil, goodness over evil, holiness over sin, we say yes, yes. The restoration of all things, beauty and flourishing and joy, we're excited about that. And what we see and because of our faith in who Jesus is is that he's a better hero than Esther. He's a better hero than Mordecai because he has given us life. He has removed the decree of death from us. And listen, it is so important that you don't just trivialize that. That doesn't just become, well, yeah, 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 I mean, what is the gospel? Jesus died for my sins and he rose from the dead. It's awesome. You need to sit in that for a moment and understand that God has satisfied his deep sense of justice through his son, Jesus Christ, so you don't have to be fearful of violence being enacted upon you or God's wrath or his judgment being poured out upon you, only his love and his mercy and his grace through faith in Christ. You have to rest in that for a moment, not run past it. We run past that so easily. And what happens when you sit in that is it brings about worship. True, spontaneous, rich worship. Because listen, worship is not just something emotional. Worship involves your mind and your heart. It is intellectual and it is emotional. If your worship is only emotional, and it's not intellectual, then it's completely shallow. If you're like, you know, you're like all the time, no matter, doesn't even matter the song, you don't even know the lyrics, you're like, woo, foot up, arms up, spin around, you know? If it's like that all the time, you don't even know what you're saying, then it's shallow. But if your worship is so intellectual that there's never any emotion, then it is plain and it's weak. Because do you know what we're worshiping? Do you know who God is, what you're saying, what you're declaring, why you're gathered? The God of the universe wants to listen to you sing songs to him, wants to listen to you meditate upon his word, wants to invite you to his table, is listening when you pray. You see, we have to really think on it and know it because it affects how we feel, and it's why it's so important that we gather. Because this right here, 
is God's ensemble. The church is God's ensemble and you are his instrument and you are welcome here. See, what we do every single week is we're a collection of God's instruments that gather together as his ensemble to make beautiful music. You're like, Carter, I don't make beautiful music. I, uh, I don't even sing because I'm terrified that people in front of me will pass out. You know, I'm like, I like kind of mouth the sing, you know, because I, I'm, not, I'm not a beautiful instrument. Maybe you sit there and you think, you know, I, I don't really know how much I have to like offer God. I'll be honest. Like I come here, I sing a little bit quietly, try to listen to the, store, to the sermon, get some interesting points, maybe a funny illustration. I, you know, maybe you take communion or maybe you don't. You sit there and you think, I'm not really serving in the church. I'm not really intimately connected in the church. Like, I'm not one of the people that came up here and has become a member. I don't think I'm ready for that. Like, I'm not, how could this be God's ensemble and that I'm an instrument in here? I'm not. Oh, you are. You see, we're all instruments of God. Some of us recognize it, and some of us are in the process of recognizing it, but what happens here on Sunday night as we gather together as his people, people that have come to know him for a long time and people that are in the process of coming to know him right now, is that what takes place here and then in the life of our community is beautiful, and what you bring here matters. It doesn't only matter to the people in this room, but it matters to God, and so when you come into this room, you may feel like, I don't really know if I'm bringing much, I'm just bringing a lot of pain and a lot of struggle and a lot of doubt. Like, that's awesome. Bring that. We bring ourselves before God. So that's the beauty of the gospel is that we don't have to fake it. We don't have to act like we have it all together because we don't. We come here and we worship because we're broken. We deserve a decree of death, and yet we've been given a decree of life. And so we come here to praise and to celebrate and to talk with other people that are in the same boat. We're God's ensemble. We're broken instruments, but he makes beautiful music out of us. See, what happens over time as we gather together, you begin to maybe sing the songs a little bit louder because you become, begin to think about what you're saying. Listen to what we, we just sung earlier. We said, we can run straight into your arms, unafraid, because every time we need you, we're met by love. That's not insignificant. What are you saying there? The God of the universe is welcoming me into his presence. I don't have to be afraid. When I come to him with everything I'm going through, I'm met by love. I don't deserve love, but I receive it because of Jesus Christ. When you think on that, how does it not well up emotion in you? When you sit and you listen to the sermon, you sit and you listen to God's word and you may feel like you don't get it all and you got lost here and there and and only a few things stick with you. You see other people taking like copious notes. You're like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to write. But yet as you sit week in and week out and you listen to God's word and God's truth through the power of the Holy Spirit, not through me, through the Holy Spirit begins to penetrate your mind, begins to affect your heart and it shows up in your life. That's that's incredible. As you come to the Lord's table, which we're going to do in a moment, you don't come to the Lord's table because it's a ritual. 
It's not a ritual, it's a means of grace. And you walk to the table knowing that God has promised that there's something special and unique that happens here. You're reminded that Jesus broke his body and he shed his blood for you. And that there is strength and hope and joy and peace found in the table. And because you know that as you take from the table, God is uniquely spiritually present here and it is enriching and empowering for your week. As you give, you don't give because you're like, you know, that was a good service. Here's a little bit of money, you know, like, or, oh, I'm a member, so I got to pay my member dues. No, 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 like, that's not what God desires, and it's not what the church desires. We give cheerfully. Why? Because we get to partner in what God is doing. We get to partner in the beauty of the gospel that many more people might come to know the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ found through faith. This is why we gather each and every week to remind ourselves of this. We are made to worship, but we are prone to wander. And so we need every week, we need times of personal worship because we are so tempted to begin to worship ourselves instead of our Savior. We're so tempted to forget about God's goodness and his faithfulness and his love in our lives. We're so tempted to get wrapped up in in little insignificant things instead of to trust and to see who God is. And to ask God to use us, even though we feel inferior, we know that God has promised that we are his instrument. Listen, we are the ensemble of God, and you are his instrument. But in order for you to play your note well, you have to be with the band. In order for you to play your note well as his instrument, you got to be with the band. None of us are called to play solo. Let's pray.